guys, Sam here. Welcome back to the Streets and Study podcast. In this episode, we speak with Associate Professor David McKenzie about his work on the Geelong Project, early intervention and his views on student homelessness. We hope you enjoy. Right, David, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, Let's start. Um, What are some of the origins of the Geelong Project? It goes back quite a long way. I mean, I've had a life before being an academic. I was a teacher and I worked on some big projects, but I've been an academic for about 30 years. And uh, I sort of ended up focusing on homelessness, in particular youth homelessness. And I worked uh, for a long time with another colleague, Chris Chamberlain. I won't go through all the things that we did in terms of research, but in the mid-90s, we started to understand that what we really needed to do was not simply build more crisis services, but we need to actually get in before that to stem the flow of young people entering homelessness. Um, So there's a whole series of projects. Um, I think our research did have some impact when the government in 1996-97 set up the Reconnect program, which was the world's first early intervention program for homeless young people or young people at risk of homelessness. And that program's still in place today, so it's a a very long-standing program. But in 2010, um, I had an opportunity to really try out some ideas that had been incubating for a number of years. Uh, When I met up with a guy in Geelong, I was asked to go down there and speak at an AGM. And I found that he was fanatical about the need for early intervention. He was running an agency. He'd worked in government for quite a while as well. And it was kind of like the two of us coming together was really the beginning of the Geelong project. Uh, I, as a researcher and an academic, he as a practitioner leader and a CEO of an agency. And I had a fair bit of research money I was able to bring through Swinburne to, to bear in trialling how you could identify risk before crisis, because in a crisis, risk is identified because the crisis has happened. Mm. Is it possible to get in before that, and how would you do it? So I developed a methodology for doing that, and then we uh, were able to secure a fairly large amount of money, over a million dollars, from the government and innovations program that they were rolling out at the time, to actually develop the model for what actually worked on the ground, because it wasn't just research for research's sake, it was really about could we change the system on the ground so we could get much better outcomes for the young people? Could we actually avert the young people entering homelessness and all of those sort of things? So that was the beginning of it. So you've just spoken about the origins. Can you go into a bit more detail about some of the basic ideas behind the Geelong Project? I'd summarise those as four. Yeah. Uh, firstly, you have to organise a community collaboration, a community collective. So you've got to bring the schools on board where most of the young people are. Yeah the youth agencies that might provide the support in case management, Headspace, for example, that's able to provide mental health support, and a number of other agencies that can contribute to what the collective and the community is able to achieve. So there's quite a lot of work goes into developing that collective and bringing people together. That's not how things normally work. Mm. Um, The second uh, key foundation would be the methodology for identifying risk early. So there's a, a survey, there's a whole process we go through and it actually works, I'm glad to say. Um, always, always a good Justified thing. about 10 years of my life. Um, and it's possible to identify those at risk of homelessness or at risk of leaving school early and a number of other things. And once you've identified that, you've got to have the workers, youth and family workers, who in a flexible way can 
go in and intervene with the young person, see what they need, work with the family. So it's youth and family work. Uh, we talk about it as youth-focused, family-centred kind of work. Not everyone's getting case managed. Many young people are just actively monitored. And you keep an eye on that cohort at risk from year to year to year. And that's a very different way from the way crisis services work. And it's achieved incredibly positive outcomes. Um, and we, our part in it is the measurement of outcomes. So it's a, got a very strong focus on, well, what are we actually achieving? Mm. Are we actually reducing homelessness? Are we actually helping young people um, stay at school and these sort of things? So they're the four foundations. Collaboration, early identification, the practice framework, which is very flexible, and the measurement of outcomes. Put those things together. There's a whole lot of detail about how to do that. Um, and it's very well developed in Geelong, and the outcomes have been very significant. So, David, can you explain the COS model, the Community of Schools and Services model? Okay. So, in each place where this is happening, we prefer to name the project by the place. It's a place-based uh, model. Yeah. So, in Geelong, it's the Geelong project. In Albury, it's the Albury project. But what is the model called? And the models, the name for the model is the Community of Schools and Services Model, or sometimes I call it the Community of Services and Schools Model, depending on whom I'm talking to. But that's the COS model. That's the, the model, the architecture of the model. And, you know, it, it allows for some adaptation in different communities, but it's got some things which, like the measurement of risk and measurement of outcomes and the basic architecture, you know, you don't mess with that because if you do... It won't work. Obviously, you've mentioned Geelong and Albury as areas where these programs have worked well. Would you say that they work better in some of these regional communities as opposed to the metro area? I wouldn't put it that way. Yeah. I think that there's some reasons why the regional communities have been the first ones to pick this up. Yeah. They've got a stronger sense already of being a community and often they feel they miss out on mm -hmm. things. So they've been very actively putting their hands up to say, look, we want to do this. But we've got initiate, what I call an initiative groups in about another maybe 10 communities, including some metropolitan communities, areas in the metropolitan area. Uh, essentially, the community isn't just a particular LGA. It's got to be forged. It's got to be a community of schools and services and stakeholders who are going to work together to make the difference. And then it sits on a, a geographical footprint somewhere. So um, Geelong, I think, had a tradition of cooperation. Um, it is a regional place with a strong sense of we are in Geelong. Mm. You know, the Geelong Football Club, they have the Geelong Cup, which was a public holiday just the other day, believe it or not. Uh, very strong sense of community. And I think that was certainly a factor in getting things started perhaps earlier than some other places. It's harder to just start it from scratch. Yeah, um, but it's, it's now being... Um, implemented and trialled uh, at an early stage in the US in a few places, in Canada and in Wales and uh, in New South Wales as well. So it's kind of, the, we hope, the start-up of a scale, scale-up of the model in many places and ultimately change the system of how we support young people in one community and the next. So there's been quite a bit of interest in exporting this model to other places? Yeah, I don't normally say this, but it's gone viral, <laughs> to use a kind of internet term. Yeah. It's, what I mean by that is that there's been a very strong show, a show of interest from people around the world. And I think our signature uh, accomplishment is that we actually showed 
how you could achieve early intervention significantly, that's not been done before. Mm. That was our great greatest achievement, I think it's fair to say. So talking about early intervention more broadly, what are the differences between early intervention and crisis intervention? Um, there's some very uh, appropriate or apt metaphors. Um, for example, if you want to reduce the road toll and the people who die you know, through car crashes, you don't put in more hospital beds in the emergency department, do you? No. You actually take measures like putting in seat belts, uh, trying to uh, change the situation in certain places on the road to make it safer. Yeah. Um, another metaphor, very similar one, is uh, you know, if there's a place where terribly people tend to jump off a cliff, you don't put a first aid station down the bottom, do you? You put something up the top to try and perhaps stop them doing it. Mm. Yeah. So that's the difference between early intervention and crisis. Um, crisis services complain that you know it's one crisis after another. And even if we put in more, more crisis services, that cannot possibly reduce youth homelessness. To reduce youth homelessness, we have to do two things. Most importantly, we've got to stem the flow going into it, yeah. and there's a lot of things we can do there, including the Geelong Project. But we also have to be able to get young people out of homelessness if there's nowhere they can go back to. Um, rapid rehousing. And these days, young people have real trouble, real difficulty in getting affordable housing. You know, um, that's become a, a mainstream problem. We're not building enough social housing. We're not paying attention enough to the sort of models of housing and the various options that young people need. Uh, we're not doing anywhere near enough of that. So there's sort of a back end and front end challenge, I think. It's not so much that we need crisis services. In some places, perhaps we do. I wouldn't argue that we don't. But generally speaking, it's not an argument for more crisis services. Mm. Um, and that was sort of highlighted for me recently with that very tragic death of Courtney Heron, the young woman who died in the park. She was murdered. Mm. And my colleague and I wrote a, an article in the conversation. And a lot of people say, oh, we need more crisis accommodation. We, you know, if we'd had crisis accommodation, it wouldn't have happened. And that's a very common sense sort of response. I understand that. We said, you have to take a counterintuitive view. There would have been things we could have done that could have been done to prevent her getting into that situation. Apparently they weren't. And if we'd had rapid rehousing, she could have quickly been enabled and supported to get off so she didn't sleep on the streets. They're still the two challenges. So that was the basis of our argument. Um, and I think a lot of people agree with us, but there's still a common sense view. We need more crisis accommodation. Let's build a shelter in the middle of Melbourne. No, that's going back to the future. We used to have those sort of shelters. They're terrible places. They're not helpful. You know, big dormitories with people warehoused out like that. No, that's not the way. We don't want to go back to that. So it's like treating the causes as opposed to the symptoms. There's things we can do to, to address some of the structural issues. There's stuff around income support for young people. There's stuff about uh, the support they need to trans transition, you know, from through school, from school, through post school into employment. That's that's a huge challenge for not just a small number of highly disadvantaged kids, for for whom it is a big challenge, but for a much wider cohort of young people these days. You mentioned the Geelong Project involves student surveys. What are some of the warning signs that someone might be at risk of becoming homeless? Well, in terms of the indicator that we use, which is a simple indicator, it's a validated indicator, um, 
there's sort of five questions. It's basically looking for family conflict, um, whether a young person wants to get out of the home, whether they don't feel safe at home, a number of little questions like that. And if you get a score of nine to ten on those five questions, something's going on. We take the seven to ten ranges indicating a level of risk and we go in there and talk to the young person, just see what's going on. And look, you know, things go up and down in life, as you well know. Sometimes things are bad at home. Maybe dad goes a bit crazy and does stuff. And then it abates. So, you know, you're dealing with the reality of people's lives. Mm -hmm. But being there to offer early intervention support that can reach families. Now, schools can't do that. What schools can do is ring up and say, why isn't so-and-so at school? They can't go out and do family therapy or or provide in-depth interventions into a family. And when you do that, you can make a difference. Um, When you look at the research, about two-thirds of the factors that account for educational underachievement are not school factors, believe it or not. Mm. They're other factors outside of the school. It's the family you live in and what's going on there. It's the neighbourhood you live in. It's the fact that you are poor. It's the fact that there's a whole range of factors. So what we're trying to do with the COS model is to focus on those things. Hopefully our partners in the school are also doing better with some of the in-school factors and the, the people in the schools and the people outside the schools are working very closely together on a day-to-day basis to support the young people that need the support the most. So as we've been producing this podcast, we've obviously been doing a lot of background research on youth and student homelessness. And what we've found is that there really isn't that much academic research specifically about university students. Um, As an academic yourself, why do you think that is? Well, when I first started doing research, believe it or not, 1990, (laughs) um, uh, I think out of the 2,000 young people that dropped into a, a centre in the, the, near Flinders Street, Melbourne, I think there was one university student that ever turned up there who was experiencing, evidently experiencing homelessness. Now, today, I met a young person the other day who was a university student who, who was experiencing homelessness. I also hear, it's true that there's not much research on this. Um, a lot of students are, are doubling up and sort of couch surfing in I mean, if a share house has three bedrooms and you've got three people in the house and then a whole lot of other people could have bed down and sort of come in and out, that's more than just a share house with eight people. Mm. That's Some people are couch surfing, basically. Yeah. yeah, They're not sleeping rough, but then we understand that homelessness is more than sleeping rough. It's If you don't have a decent permanent home, you're floating around, you're in temporary sort of things. Um, I think there's quite a few students, we don't know how many, uh, the universities probably could do more to to help students with this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, we have student housing, but that's very expensive. You know, um, you know, you have to be fairly wealthy to be able to access that sort of housing. Maybe other things could be done to provide student housing that was much more affordable and more support. Um, certainly, I've heard of groups of students, possibly uh, mainly international students, who in backpackers have ended up eight to a room. Mm-hmm which is pretty much how students are accommodated in China, but not here. Yeah. Um, so I hear these stories, it's all anecdotal. Um, I've not conducted any systematic research on this myself, but the anecdotal evidence is quite loud. You hear it a lot. There clearly is a problem out there. It's only recently that um, we've actually started doing for international students who are very significant. And they come out here and if things don't work out, they've got a real problem. They and have, you know the safety net that a domestic they don't have the family have. background yeah, support yeah. I mean if you've got family support 
you, you avoid homelessness. But what about young people for, who don't have family support or don't have sufficient family support yeah. where things have gone wrong? Yeah. And they're, they're starting at university, which is terrific, but there's the rest of their life. And also, you know, these days as a university student, you've probably got to work as well as study. Right. It's so common. Um, if you've got to pay the rent and you don't come from a wealthy family who's just going to pay it for you. So there's a lot of issues there. Um, there's not been uh, anywhere near... There hasn't been very much research done on it at all, but yeah. we do know it's a problem. Uh, you just said that universities can do more. Just expanding on that a bit, uh, what do you think are some potential actions that could be taken by governments and universities to reduce homelessness amongst students? Well, I, th- I think um, it, we need to address the um, the need for more, uh, you know, youth-specific housing options. Yeah. Social housing for young people. Now, young people don't get into social housing really. Only about two point nine percent get into social housing. Uh, of those young people that um, that use homeless services, there's about forty-two thousand of them on their own. That's between fifteen and twenty-four. They're about sixteen percent of the homeless clients that go through homeless services. If you count all the men, women and children under the age of 25, many of whom are in family groups, not just by themselves, um, it's about 44%. And then you look at social housing, it's like 2.9%. And I do remember a very senior public servant in a state that will remain nameless, who said, oh, we don't really want young people in social housing, do we, David? And I said, well, that's a policy that's working, isn't it? <laughs> um, that's something we need to rethink and we need to change. So in many European countries, social housing is a much bigger proportion of the housing that's available uh, in Holland or, or even Germany or the Scandinavian countries. Now, we should have been investing in social housing. If we had done that over the past 30 years, we would not have the same level of housing crisis that we do have today. And both the governments of both sides of politics have been responsible for that problem. They've contributed to that problem, I'm sorry to say. So what do you recommend our listeners who are at risk of becoming homeless do? Look, I think the most important thing, and I think a lot of youth workers and a lot of others would say the same thing, it's, it's a relationship thing. Yeah. It's If you've got a relationship like a, a mentor or someone who cares about you, someone who's prepared to do something for you, that makes all the difference. You know, think of teachers that you've had. Now, they're not all people that you love, but you probably had one teacher at least who really you were able to talk to and you admired and who really did something for you. I think we all need that in life and particularly young people who don't have family back, uh, family support. They need a relationship. Good workers focus on building authentic relationships with young people. That's the key to actually being able to help them help themselves. Mm. They're not just providing a service, they're actually building a relationship and in the course of doing that, doing all the things that are needed to help that young person make decisions that they need to make, access services that they may need to use, face up to problems that they may not have faced up to before. So that would be the key kind of ingredient that I would probably point to. Say we wanted to help people who are facing homelessness. What could we do? Well, there are, there are good programs where you can volunteer. Um, uh, look, I, I'm, a lot of people think, oh, I want to go out and help people sleeping rough on the streets because that's the visible homeless. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm concerned that sometimes that's turned into almost an industry. You know, swags for the homeless... Is that what we should be raising money from the general population to, to do? 
or cardboard box houses for the homeless, but not real houses. Or, you know, Lord will wash people's clothes and they can shower and stand in the street instead of going somewhere where they can do that in private and in a dignified way. These are well-intentioned but misguided responses to it. The challenge isn't to make rough sleeping comfortable, which is not to say we want to make people's lives uncomfortable. The challenge is to get them into sort of secure housing where they can be supported. If they've got severe mental health issues, they need a lot of help. Um, if they're only recently homeless and sleeping rough, then we need to help them to get back and connect, reconnect with where they came from and sort out the issues that caused them to become homeless in the first place. So there's lots of good organisations where you can come and volunteer and learn how to do stuff. Um, you know, in New York, people turn up often at soup kitchens and there's thousands of people sleeping rough in New York. We have a few hundred, which is not to say that that's okay or it's better, um, but, you know, we do provide a lot more of a social safety net in Australia. We have our universal healthcare system. We have more services. We even have some early intervention services, which, you know, in the United States, they've really not got there yet. They have a shelter system, you know, where people go into these warehouses and, and sleep. So uh, volunteering in, in, in good programs is, you know, is a good thing to do. Next episode, we're going to look into early intervention and prevention, as well as some current government welfare policies. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Streets and Study podcast. If you or someone you know is at risk or is currently facing homelessness, please call the Homelessness Australia hotline on 1800 825 955 to speak to a housing and support worker.